Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. When natural disasters strike, those affected work to rebuild their lives and livelihoods. But before that happens, we must access the damage that has occurred. By doing this, we can work to improve the structures where we live and work and hopefully prevent the same damage from happening again. Dr. Tim Marshall is joining us today and is one of the nation's preeminent forensic engineers. He was also involved in the development team that produced the enhanced Fujita scale for tornado damage assessment, as well as a major contributor to the committee to update the Saphir Simpson scale. Dr. Marshall, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Yes, good day to you all. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to call him Tim because I know him. He's a colleague. Um, but uh, before we get started, Tim, uh, there's a question that I ask every Weather Geeks guest. How did you become a Weather Geek, or are you one? I had no choice in the matter, okay? To me, it was uh, something that just happened uh, like serendipity. Uh, I was a nine-year-old going to school like everybody else. I was interested in weather. I was taking daily weather observations. And then here in the suburb of Chicago, a violent tornado hits my town. And I heard about tornadoes, but I never really knew that they would do such destruction. And to see it firsthand in your own town was really mind boggling because I thought, hey, I'm in the Chicago area. I thought the city protected me from the from tornadoes. I didn't realize that Tornado Alley kind of goes up into Illinois. So that was really a kind of a, a, a string of curiosity for me. I, it started me with writing to local TV meteorologists. And then little later on, Dr. Ted Fujita came to the University of Chicago. I wrote to him. He sent me a whole bunch of his colored maps, which I put on my wall. And... I really got into it and I thought, wow, this tornado thing is really interesting. And I think I want to study this for the rest of my life. So that's how I became your weather geek. <laughs> yes. You know, I think you have a story that's similar in trajectory to many of the guests that we have on the podcast that talk about sort of early interest. But again, your profession is an engineer. And I, I, this is one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on. Um, we often have meteorologists, climate scientists, and other types of scientists. We rarely have engineers on, but uh, there's quite a bit of an interface between meteorology and engineering. And I, I want to talk about that here in a moment. But before I do, let me give you a little bit more about uh, Tim Marshall. He ranks among the world's foremost experts on wind damage to the built environment. In addition to being a structural and forensic engineer and meteorologist, he is a pioneering storm chaser. And I, I definitely want to talk a little bit about that a little bit later in the podcast, given some things that have happened and get your perspective as one of the most experienced out there. Um, he has conducted more than 10,000 damage surveys of hailstorms, tornadoes, and hurricanes over the past 40 years. And as I mentioned, he's been involved in the EF scale update, as well as the update to the 
Safir Simpson skill. He has served as a damage survey trainer for the National Weather Service and has served on the National Vortex 2 and Rotate projects. Uh, since 1983, Tim has worked for the leading Texas firm of, is it Hogg or Hague Engineering? Hey. Hague Engineering. Good, thank you. I thought it was Hague. Um, Hague Engineering, eventually serving as senior engineer and meteorologist, where he has served as an expert witness for hundreds of legal cases involving storm-related damages. So you can see we have the expert on this topic that we're discussing today. Now, one thing I mentioned is you uh, worked on a team to help up update the Fujita scale to the enhanced Fujita scale. Why, why was that needed? Why do we need that update? Well, Dr. Fujita himself knew that his scale was empirically derived and that the only way that you could really calibrate that is through doing actual damage surveys and then correlating it to maybe when. Maybe some engineer can calculate what it would take to knock down this tower and then see if that fits within the Fujita scale. Well, so he knew that before he died. And then when he died, the engineers at Texas Tech, my alma mater, saw the need to update it because they said, hey, these F-scale winds get out of control and out of hand when they get higher. So F3, F4s are way overestimates. It doesn't take a 300 mile an hour wind to knock down a house. So we know that from an engineering standpoint. So we have to go in there and calibrate the Fujita scale. And then then we had uh, you know, Dr. Greg Forbes, who you know, uh, and uh, Chuck Doswell, who you know. Uh, we had a bunch of scientists on board here, and they all agreed that this Fujita scale needed some sort of calibration, some sort of tweaking of those higher winds. And that's what set out the motion. In 2001, it started. And through the years and of meetings and that, finally came up with... Uh, a document that the National Weather Service actually adopted in 2007 as the enhanced Fujita scale to which all future tornadoes are now being rated. And this is the damage rating that they're given. Yeah, I remember a little of this work going on. I, I, I was president of the American Meteorological Society in the early 2010s. And I remember some of this discussion and discussion with the American Society of Civil Engineers uh, and AMS. So, uh, really was an important scale to update. Uh, I think that many people still are confused by the, the differing scales out there, this um, Saffir Simpson scale and the Infujita scale. Uh, Amanda Schroeder, whom you and I both know, have, <laughs> have been working with on a flood-related scale. Um, how is, I mean, this is a question that one of um, my producers at the Weather Channel and the Weather Geeks team posed in my notes. Um where are places that we can still gain improvement? I mean, I, I know there's been this now adding things like mobile Doppler radar data when it's available and other things. So where, where are the next areas that we can enhance the scale even more? Well, the great thing about the, uh, the science that we're in here is that uh, the tornadoes are never going to go away. They're, they're, they're going to continue, and that gives us more information, more data to go out there. And we learn by these tornado disasters. We go out there, we do very detailed evaluations and assessments and add to the database. So the future with the population still growing and cities obviously exploding out into areas that were once farm fields are now gonna be cities and, and urban areas. 
the targets are getting bigger. So we're seeing tornadoes that are going to do more destruction in the future and more information will be gathered from them. So we'll continue to, to tweak the enhanced Fujita scale. And in fact, currently, there is a joint project between the AMS, uh, NOAA, and the American Society of Civil Engineers in updating the enhanced Fujita scale. And I'm involved with, with doing that for the next generation. Yeah, we thank, thank you all for your service in that. Uh, one of the things that came comes to mind is uh, the Saphir-Simpson scale. I and mean, there's been a quite a bit of discussion about that lately. I've been somewhat vocal about it because I just don't think it has the information on rainfall that we need to convey the tropical cyclone rainfall flooding threat. But uh, when uh, when Saphir and Simpson, you know, designed the scale, it was always a wind scale. I mean, I think people missed, missed that point. It was it, it does what it was designed to do in terms of wind uh, assessment and damage. Uh, what's going on with the update to that and why is that needed? Well, as you know, the was a wind scale, but then storm surge was added to that scale. Right, right. And we all know that there's very poor correlation between winds and water levels because there's so many other factors that are involved with that. So I was consulting with them about what should we do with that? And the committee agreed that we should take them apart and just make it a wind scale only. And the storm surge, they can deal with that on a case by case basis and location by location basis because it varies so much. So I was really pleased to see that they took the storm surge away from that scale and, and it's just a wind scale. But at the same token, there's problems with the Saffir Simpson scale, wind scale, and that is it's based off a sustained wind. And a lot of the recordings that we see on land don't even get to what the rating is for the, the hurricane out there. It's, it's far lower because wind slows down when it interacts with the, the topography and the trees and the buildings and that. So we're recording lower winds than what is being predicted. And so trying to get that information out to the public about, well, this is primarily what it is offshore in open water. And when it comes on in, then it begins to slow down and the, it's not as powerful inland as it is out in the, in the water, in the open water. What, what's the... I guess uh, timeline, or are we already there? I, mean, I know you said that they've already pulled them apart. I mean, are, are, are you still in the process of any other updates, or for the moment, is that sort of paused? And you know, are, are there still things happening? No, it, it, right now the the Saffir Simpson scale is just the wind scale. So, and that's the way it will be. There's no future linking anything else with that. And, and you talked about rainfall, and, and that's a, certainly a good topic that needs to be addressed with that. And, and, and again, that kind of varies with the movement and, and the size of the system, whether it slows down and stalls over in, in an area, you know, and, and, and it turns out to be a major player, isn't it? It, it, it really, when you get a, a, these systems stalling, sometimes a, a stalled out like tropical storm is worse 
Yeah, we saw that. With, I remember Allison in Houston. Yes, I remember Allison. Yeah, flooded Houston. And then Harvey comes along and does it again, as if you think, oh, this is a once in a thousand year event. It'll never happen in another thousand years, right? So it happened again. So yeah. it's like, wow, I'm pretty old. So it's like, it's an amazing thing that, that uh, we, we deal with. But, you know, they're going to occur. We just get in the way. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. I, you know, I've published a paper back in 2007 on this very topic, noting that much of the flooding from tropical systems really doesn't come from the big cat three, four, five storms. It's from smaller cat ones and tropical storms, even things that don't get a name. I remember the 2016 storm event in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. That thing never even got a name. It was tropical. We've done some studies on it. It was certainly tropical in nature, but never received a name. Even recently, Tim, as we're recording this, just uh, I guess we had tropical storm Alex uh, move through Southern Florida. I was in Florida at the time at a funeral and the, 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 the flooding that I was seeing coming out of Miami there, people still yeah. driving through roads and it, it didn't even have a name at that point. I think it was still a potential tropical cyclone at that point. Yeah. You know, uh, 10, 12 inches of rain, certainly and in urban areas, it just leads to catastrophic flooding. Yeah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Tim Marshall, uh, one of our community's top voices when it comes to uh, tornado and structural assessment damage and so forth. I want to pivot the discussion now and talk a little bit about what you've seen in the your career in terms of structural engineering and how that has evolved to serve as a mitigator in terms of storm damage. I mean, I, I have to imagine it over your 40 plus years of career, there have been some changes in structural engineering. Can you can you just give the Weather Geeks audience an overview of what you see as the biggest advances in structural engineering that, that help with tornado or hurricane or other wind damage? Yeah, I've seen some uh, improvement in the way houses are built, buildings are built, in my 40-year career, I think the first big impact was Hurricane Andrew back in 92. That was a wake-up call for Florida. And they they took the ball and they ran with it and said, hey, we're going to go ahead and upgrade our building codes. And so Florida came up with their own statewide building code, which increased resistance to buildings and I commend them for doing that. It was a difficult thing to do. Uh, obviously, they got a lot of pushback uh, politically from that, but they went ahead and they did that. And building better is, of course, what I've been advocating my whole career uh, to do. That's and we, we can do that. I mean, it, it really makes me angry when I go in and I see houses that collapse like a house of cards because they're just not attached very well. And, and when I point this out to the homeowners, they themselves get angry and say, well, you know, we, we can do better. 
we can resist. We, we see what the IBHS folks do with their wind tunnel. And if you strap it down, it stays. And if you don't, it, it goes away. So we can build against the wind. Uh, it's the water that's the problem because the water uh, weighs so much. And when it's moving, uh, that's something you really don't, don't want to think about. You want to build up uh, above the water. The wind is, is something we can resist. So that was the first wake of call. And then the next one were the series of tornadoes that went through Moore, Oklahoma, yeah. and devastated that. So they said, hey, we can do better here. You know, the building code is just a minimum, all right? Well, we've all taken tests, right? We've all, do, do we just want to get to the minimum? I mean, just the pass? So it's like, we can build better above the code. And that's what they did. And more Oklahoma has their own building code, which is higher in wind speed than the national code, which I think is wonderful. And I think we need to think about each community and trying to do that. Now, yes, it's going to cost a little more, but not a lot more because you can put straps and, and anchors and solidly sheet houses for, for just really a fraction of the cost of the house today. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we have, we have the technology, and I and I've I've followed you for many years, and I, I you're you're absolutely right. I've seen you in your social media posts and so forth, just really adamantly rail on the fact that some of the disasters or damages that we see in some cases are just because of poor construction or the way the home was constructed, given the fact that we have the technology to do better. And so I know that that's something that you have really been vocal about uh, over the years. You've been a part of some fairly high-profile damage assessments, numerous EF5s and outbreaks and so forth. Is there one particular assessment or storm event that really, to this day in 2022, I mean, sticks out in your mind over the many other sort of horrific ones that I'm sure you've been a part of? Well, we, we in order to get to EF5, it has to be really in a historic, unprecedented event with uh, tremendous damages. And there's been a handful of those in my career that I've seen. Certainly, Gerald, Texas, pops up as, as one because it was a slow-moving tornado. It was only moving at like eight miles an hour. All right. So that tornado had time to just grind up and pulverize houses and there was you know, nothing left even the flooring was taken away so that was a very violent tornado to which today all other tornadoes are rated to those kinds of events okay certainly bridge creek in 99 is another event uh, joplin wasn't the highest and strongest but certainly was very impressive we have six square miles that were leveled, which were once densely packed houses and trees, completely gone. You couldn't see one block before the tornado. Now you could see across the entire town to the horizon. It was amazing the level of, of complete destruction that we saw there. So in order to be EF5, it really needs to be the highest unprecedented style tornado. Yeah. And you talk about EF5s and the various ratings. And I think many people listening to this probably understand that the larger number, the more destructive the storm. But, you know, as I teach in my radar mesoscope meteorology class at University of Georgia, sometimes these tornadoes may not be F5s if they've got these multiple suction vortices dancing around. And so you get these sort of sort of, you know, people all want to ask me, well, why is that house standing in the subdivision, but another house not? Um, so, 
Um, talk about sort of other dangers of that you experience in both watching these storms in their environment and also assessing them that may not just be related to the sheer magnitude uh, of the storm in terms of the EF scale. I mean, I'm talking about maybe size of the storm and you know physical size or whether it has these little multiple suction vortices dancing around within them. So what, what are just inherent structural da- dangers associated with tornado beyond just the scale magnitude? Well, you have to deal with the, the two basic things is that the, you have a load on one hand and then you have a resistance on the other hand. So it's like with tornadoes, the, the wind speed obviously is important. Also flying debris in the wind is important. And then what's to resist that? You know, your house. So one of the weak links we find is your attached garage door. Your garage door is very susceptible to wind. It's like a sail. It buckles in. It lets the wind in the garage. And then that adds additional pressure on the roof. And then the roof comes on off because most of the connections from the roof down to the walls is just a straight or toenail. And it's easily backed out. So really, it's a load and resistance thing. and That's what we're looking for in terms of increasing the resistance. We can't do much about the load, but uh, certainly uh, multiple vortices or higher wind speeds can cause more destruction. And especially if it's uh, different directions, you know, you're you're hit with a 150 mile an hour wind from one direction. And then just seconds later, you're hit with 150 mile an hour wind from the other direction. So that double whammy just really kind of compromises the building from, from both directions. Yeah, this is really amazing. Boy, I just learned something new from you today. I didn't realize that about the garage doors. I mean, as I think about it, it certainly makes sense that that would be a point of weakness. And, and I mean, I'm, are there any codes or laws that are trying to inc- improve that that point of weakness in homes? Well, you can buy a wind-resistant garage door. It's up over and above what the code recommends. Let's keep in mind, again, the code is a minimum. So that's all it is. And there's nothing wrong with building above the code. You can get an impact resistant window. You can get a wind rated garage door. So you can buy straps to strap the roof down to the walls, solid sheathing around a home. These are things you can do. Yes, they're above the code, but they're better wind resistance. And in fact, it's, it's better to have a like a fortified style home, which you can get a fortified rating from IBHS. And I think it helps the resale value of your house. If you go ahead and say, well, our house is certified for, you know, 140 mile an hour winds, not just 90. I mean, I think people would be willing to pay a little more for a fortified house, something that is stronger, better built than, than just your run of the mill standard house. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Tim Marshall. You know, we've been talking about in that last segment about tornadoes, but you also wrote out several major hurricanes like Ivan, Katrina, and Ike. Um, Does experiencing the storm itself change how you see the aftermath uh, from a structural perspective when you're doing these post-storm assessments? Most definitely. I mean, let's face it. I like wind. So <laughs> a calm day doesn't do anything for me. I, I, I like wind. So hurricanes, of course, you immerse yourself in the storm itself. And what I try to do is on a higher end hurricane, I find a parking garage, get up in the, in the top of the parking garage and ride it out there. And so, yeah, I mean, these hurricanes, when you see them firsthand, you see how mean they can be. Uh, uh, during uh, some of these, these hurricanes, it, I, I just there's a period in the eye wall where it's, the wind is unrelenting. And it just seems to me like there's a meanness to that wind. And then you know I hear a bunch of noises. I see a bunch of things going on. And then I go out immediately afterward before any cleanup. And get a firsthand look at the damage. So before anything is tampered or destroyed, I can see what happened. And that's the engineering side. So the front side, meteorology, backside of a storm is the engineering. And, and then there's obviously the humanitarian toll on that backside often as well. When you see the, the outcomes of that violence of that anger that you describe with these hurricane winds. I, I, I went to school at Florida state university. Uh, I think the closest uh, I, I was involved with a storm directly myself was Opal uh, as well. And I wasn't even anywhere near the, the, the core of the eye, eye wall region of the storm, but uh, definitely remember it. Well, <laughs> um, I, you know, this, this really takes me to, um, you know, I, I want to get your thoughts on storm chasing in general, Tim, because I know you do it and you're experienced at it, but you know, I want to save that for the last part of the podcast. Uh, before we go there, I, I want to get your thoughts as a leader in the field on where you hope to see the field of forensic engineering go as far as either storm damage assessment, technological advances or so forth. Uh, if you're, you had a magic wand, what are the things that you'd like to see or need? Well, one of the things I would love to see is more curriculum regarding forensic engineering in universities. Uh, there are books out on forensic engineering, for example, some of them would serve as excellent texts. And I would like to see courses offered, not only maybe in a school setting, but also online. There is some training online that the National Weather Service uses for their people, but I would like to see that uh, more broadly introduced into for emergency managers and, and law enforcement. So they have an idea about, you know, where, where would we want to look for uh, people, for example, in the first responder? Uh, where would we, what would we look for in terms of uh, problems with a building that may fall down and hurt somebody during the rescue operations? Uh, so there's a lot of questions that need to be answered. And I think a good course on, on how buildings fail would be wonderful to see. 
You know, and I'm really a little surprised that there there isn't more of that. I mean, certainly, um, you know, I, I will certainly at least bring this up with uh, folks. I'm, I have a dual appointment here at the University of Georgia in our College of Engineering, and it's a growing College of Engineering. And uh, certainly there are some places that gaps they're trying to fill. So this is really interesting for me just as an academic at a university, uh, though my 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 day job is I'm an atmospheric sciences professor, but I certainly have some affiliation with our engineering school. Yeah, my company is a forensic engineering company, but I didn't learn that in school. I had to learn it out here on the job and in, in looking at broken and busted stuff and failed buildings. And that's what I do for a living. And And I would love to see something like a course. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. And by the way, for those that are listening, you may not be familiar with, there are also some uh, aspects of our field called forensic meteorology too. Uh, At some point, I hope to have a a show here on Weather Geeks on that as well. Tim, I want to now pivot because there, in recent months, we've had some losses in the community uh, of 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 young young and more senior people uh, that lost their lives in in car related accidents associated with storm chasing. Now. I believe in both cases, they weren't directly related to a tornado itself. They were out on the chase. So it was just sort of a actual an accident that could have happened driving to the mall or to the grocery store because of the rain and so forth. But there, it did spark discussions again. I saw them in social media and in the regular media on the dangers of storm chasing. And I've actually been vocal at times about my concerns about the convergence problem. There's so many people out there these days on storms, some less experienced than others. Now, you're out there and you're very experienced and so forth. I just want to get your general. And first of all, before I even say that, just our, our thoughts and prayers to those families uh, as well, those people that lost their lives. But I just want to get your thoughts, Tim, as an experienced, not only engineer and meteorologist, but storm chaser. Well, you know, storm chasing started with a few individuals. And, you know, the number one person is David Hoadley. He started back in the 50s forecasting, going out when there was a thing called interstates that just started, you know, being put in. (laughs) And so otherwise you'd have to drive through every small town to try to get out of the planes to take you days. So he would do that. And it took him about 10 years before he saw his first tornado and doing it. So that shows you the dedication that he had. And then he decided to, to, to correspond with others who were interested. And before you know it, he developed a newsletter called Storm Track. And it started with like 10 or 20 people and grew to a few hundred. And then I took it over and then it grew to a thousand after the movie Twister. Remember that movie came out? Oh, in yeah. Sure. yeah. Well, that had a huge spark in interest. And now you have, uh, uh, well, back in that, that day, uh, you had hundreds of chasers out there. Really wasn't too much of a problem, but then tour groups started where you actually had vans of people who were just novices that would pay money, big money to go out there and go with a guide. And now it's thousands. So you have so many people out there. I was just watching uh, the uh, uh, yesterday, what, what was going on. There was one storm near Julesburg, Colorado, and there was like a hundred chasers showing up with their little beacons on, on the radar app that I have. And it's like, there's hundreds of people more than that because only so many use those beacons. But it's like, wow, that's a lot of people out in a rural area, few roads. You know it's crowded out there. And the odds of running into something like, 
you know, bad weather, pretty common. And then you have the other traffic. Now, some of the recent fatalities were because 18 wheelers came in, you know, they cannot stop on a dime. And if somebody were to stop on the road, they can't stop on a dime. And so uh, we had some accidents recently that were fatal because this just happens with the more people that go out there and do this sport, it, the more chances are of serious accidents and death. I mean, is it, I guess bottom line from your perspective, is there anything that could or should be done? Or is it one of those that is what it is and people are going to do it and we just have to just continue to preach safety and traffic laws and those types of things? Or, 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 or is there something you feel should be done? I think it's the latter. I mean, people are going to do this regardless if, if there's fatalities involved with it. People still drive cars and there's fatalities involved with cars. So it's like they're going to continue to do that. It is certainly what I have tended to do shifting my chase strategy a bit is I get off the main roads more. I get up in the, in the rural areas that are less traveled and not as many people. I, I, I don't just rely on a phone app. Uh, I actually have county road maps from each of the states I chase in and make sure they're updated so I can go on roads that most chasers don't even know about because I've got these county road maps. So I still look at the old maps, you know, pull them out and have someone else drive while I'm sitting there navigating. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, again, Tim's very experienced also. That's uh, something that should not be missed in the conversation. He's been doing this for a while. And, you know, experience does matter in all of our professions. And so, Tim, I, I really want to thank you. Is there anywhere that you want to promote as far as a website where people can follow you or any social media places that you want to mention to the Weather Geeks listeners? I, I really, you know, I, I'm on Facebook. That's all I'm on uh, social media wise. I, I, I have a Twitter account, but I don't really tweet. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, I post my chases there. Yeah. And, and certainly uh, you know, I just say to, to folks who want to go out and do storm chasing to to read what up on it uh, or go on a tour group. That's that's fine. Uh, you can learn a lot on a tour group. Just don't go out blindly and and chase a storm. Uh, you know you're you're really putting yourself and others in danger when you do that. So uh, this uh, these storms and as you know, Marshall, some of these supercells are real beasts, oh, yeah. and, and it's something that you really don't want to mess with. Oh, Same yeah. for hurricanes. You just don't really want to mess with hurricane. You know you want to have some a lot of safety escape routes. All of these things logistically. Uh, have backups for for food and 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 water and that because you may get stuck as stranded. So it's like I I simply just want to emphasize safety and education. Yeah, here 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 on that, and that's where we have to end it. Uh, we don't have a geek of the week. This normally we'll uh, reserve this segment of the podcast for a geek of the week. We we don't have one, but I do want to again. Uh, send our thoughts and prayers out to those that have recently, their families of those that recently lost their lives out there uh, and in general. Um, Tim, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. 
Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 